and welcome to the Investment Week podcast series. In this episode, we'll be discussing challenges presented by the transition away from fossil fuels and look at how the unfolding tragedy in Ukraine may have a knock-on effect on net zero goals. I'm Alex Rolandi, Deputy News Editor, and I have the pleasure of being joined by James Alexander, CEO of the UK Sustainable Investment and Finance Association, Marianne Zangul, Aberdeen's Head of ESG for Fixed Income, Paul Udall, Lead Portfolio Manager on Lombard ODA's Climate Transition Strategy, and last but not least, Tony Coveney, Managing Director and Head of Infrastructure Asset Management at Thomas Lloyd. Without further ado, let's move on to the first question. So, what are the main challenges presented by the transition to net zero, and what role can investors play in driving the necessary change? James, do you want to get the ball rolling up? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, clearly, the, the, you know, well, first of all, Alex, great, great to be here with such a such a fantastic panel. I think it's going to be a really great conversation. And, you know, net zero is, I think, going to be like that already is one of the most defining things that, that our generation is, is trying to do um, both in our it, and, and it kind of takes in all of our areas of, of life. It takes in, you know, our personal lives. It takes in what we think about politics. It takes in about what we do at work and how and how we engage and, and, the, and the work that we do. And um, and. You know, we should not be in any under any illusions that this is going to be an easy transition. It's going to be really hard. It's going to cover you know every aspect of the economy. And if you look right now at the economy that we have, um, about you know here in the UK, about ninety five percent of the economy is not currently aligned to net zero. Um, and so one of the most important questions is how do we make that transition and how do we get things to transition towards towards that that I guess Paris alignment, net zero, um, uh, uh, whatever you might want to phrase it as. And I think so. So you know. For investors, what is it that we're looking at and, and what is it that we're doing? Now, clearly, there's you know some role in investing in new green net zero aligned um, activities. We've got the, the, the UK's green taxonomy. I'm part of the advisory group on that, which is helping to identify well, what things are actually aligned with this um, what things actually are green. Um, how do we actually describe that to to our investors and sort of demonstrate how things are green? But I think that's only a tiny piece of the story because the, the other bit of the story is how do we make that transition? And, and of course, what happens if we don't make that transition? And if we don't make the transition, one of two things will happen. Either um, the transition will happen and our businesses, our economy will not be ready to to take advantage or to provide the goods and services that are needed in a net zero world. Um, or, or otherwise, the transition won't happen and we'll be faced with catastrophic climate change challenges um, and so you know we we really have this really sort of great necessity to make this transition and to make it very quickly we need to half emissions by the end of this decade which is you know rapidly um coming up so you know we've got so much to do in such a short space of time everybody must be doing everything that they can be doing and for us as investors and as the investor community i think one of the key questions is you know how can we make the change in the real economy um, that is going to that's going to help those companies that we invested in to make that transition to net zero. And so for us, one of the really big questions and most important aspects is stewardship and investor engagement and how it is that we're using our ownership and our shareholding as really active owners and, and, and supporting the companies that we're invested in, encouraging them. And, 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 and you know, through sticks and carrots, I suppose, we've got both options um, to get them into that space where they're, where they're thinking about this seriously, where they're creating transition plans, where those transition plans are being followed. And, and so therefore, we have an, invest, uh, an, an economic base that's fit for the challenges um, of the the rest of the century, and that actually gets us to net zero. You know, I think that's the big challenge that we that we're working on as investors, uh, and we see new regulation coming down that's going to be looking at that. I mentioned the green taxonomy. We've got the sustainable finance disclosure regulations and the associated fund labelling um, that are moving forward. Um, 
But I think the key thing is, and the key message to government is, you can't rely and outsource all of this work just to us. You know, this is something that we that we want to do as an industry that we're willing to be part of. We're no longer saying, you know, our our job is just to invest in the economy as we find it. You know, that's not where we are anymore. We recognise that we can help shape the economy to, to to be what we want it to be. But we're part of a team effort, and everybody is on that team. So you know, we're keen to do our play our part. Can't do it alone. Marianne, what are you seeing in the fixed income space, particularly regarding challenges? Yeah, thanks, Alex, and, and great to be here. Um, I think I think James raised quite a few very very pertinent points there. You know, there is a credibility gap here between the pledges governments made at COP26 and the actions they're taking. And if you look at um, analysis that's been done, done on that, so the climate action tracker analysis we're still on track for a 2.4 degrees world. So there is a, a big gap and we, we do need government to, to step into that gap. I think one of the other important points that I think is useful is that we can't just invest in companies that are green. So there's no point in us, you know, when we think about net zero and we think about future portfolios, you know, by targeting um, just the companies that where the carbon emissions are, are below benchmark or, you know, are, are great, it's not a solution. So a big part of our role within fixed income is engaging with those companies and finding out what their plans are. You know, some of these companies have um, transition plans. They've got net zero 2050 targets. And, and a key part of our role is understanding, A, whether we think they're credible, and B, whether these companies are linking their policies to remuneration, linking them to, you know, CEO level um, involvement, but also, you know, do they have interim targets? So what are they aiming for in 2030 um, and what steps are they making along that journey? So it's not enough for us just to say, oh, well, that, that company's got a 2050 target, we can invest in it. It's about, you know, engaging with those companies and checking in on the milestones they're making and making sure they are on that journey. But it's investing in those companies that are on the journey. You know, we need to funnel the capital into companies that are looking to transition as well. And I think that's a really important point. Tony, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, morning, Alex. Uh, always a pleasure to shoot the breeze with you on these uh, on these issues and delighted to join this, uh, this panel. I think uh, the, the most important thing, uh, if we're serious about a net zero world by 2050, it is making sure that we put the resources in the right places. So uh, if you look at Asia, which has been uh, Thomas Lloyd's exclusive focus as an investor for the last 10 years, uh, if you look at Asia, that's where you've got the combination of rapid population expansion, uh, over 60% of the world's population is in Asia. You've got much faster economic growth uh, and urbanization than you've got in Europe. Uh, and you've got a much uh, larger, therefore, increase in the use and consumption of electricity. So in the last 10 years, Asia's electricity consumption has gone up 45%. Europe's, uh, by contrast, has gone down 3%. So in Europe, we're already working towards making ourselves more efficient and improving the use of our electricity. Um, I think, secondly, uh, when we look at where the impact of uh, where we deploy our capital is, uh, Asia accounts for about four times uh, the amount of carbon emissions per trillion dollars uh, of GDP than we do here in Europe. So every dollar spent in Asia has a fourfold on average greater impact on climate sustainability 
uh, than here in Europe. So to a large extent in Europe, we're trying to persuade ourselves as consumers to switch from one source of electricity to another. Uh, in Asia, they just need electricity uh, and they need to continue to expand their, uh, uh, their electricity power generation at such a rate that they need our help in order to finance that. And I think the bottom line, and you and I have discussed this before, but the bottom line is that if we're serious about a net zero world uh, by 2050, we've got to steer capital towards the fast growing markets in Asia that need that money in order to meet that goal. To continue to steer capital towards Europe, uh, Europe for a net zero world in 2050 has become the equivalent of moving the deck chairs on the Titanic. It may look pretty, but it's no longer going to affect the overall outcome. Definitely. Paul, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think, uh, well, first of all, uh, um, thanks for having me and uh, appreciate uh, all of your time. Uh, yeah, obviously, I think uh, Tony made some interesting points. A Asia is in many ways the elephant in the room and, uh, and the bulk of growth and, uh, and also emissions. Um, where I push back a little bit is, you know, I think we are seeing a reshoring activities around the world. You know, what's happened over the last 30 years is we've kind of exported a lot of our emissions to Asia. Most of the stuff we buy is manufactured there and shipped around the world with an enormous environmental cost and footprint. So I think there is a refocusing on reshoring, um, having things made locally, produced locally in a sustainable way. Uh, and, you know, that has implications if, if European companies like Nestle or Danone or, or Schneider, etc., start to reshore, there's going to be an implication in Asia. And so that's one thing I'd say. And I think we are spending a lot of time with our companies, uh, getting them to focus on their supply chains. It's no longer acceptable to just push all your emissions out uh, off your balance sheet to someone else um, and have responsibility for that. Um, and secondly, I would say that uh, I think, you know, Tony's absolutely right that, you know, the demand for energy is, is only increasing in Asia. So we, we do need to be very focused on the opportunities and capital requirements to shift away from fossil fuels uh, in places like India, you know, China, etc. Uh, and that is a, a, a huge opportunity and in many ways the most pressing one. Are there any challenges there with respect to you know, driving that change in these regions? Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the things that, you know, is always a challenge is, you know, corporate governance and disclosure requirements, uh, also government involvement. You know, we've seen a huge tariff war with solar in, in versus the US. I think one of the, 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 the issues that we've seen is exporting a lot of our emissions uh, to Asia. Uh, and then, you know, you start to see trade wars, you know, I think this is one of the benefits of reshoring is you can start to have control over your emissions and and, and your supply chains um, because, you know, the, the externality that is carbon and the impact on climate change is enormous uh, and it's becoming a political weapon as well. So um, it's it certainly, I think, over the next 10 years, we're going to see a lot of movement uh, on this front. Anyone else like to add anything to that before we move on? I, I would like to add. Actually, I think Paul's absolutely correct. The, uh, the, um, the issue now has moved uh, onto supply chains. So uh, um, the, our involvement and responsibility and accountability uh, through the supply chain, both as investors and as consumers, 
is is I think going to be one of the key drivers. Uh, but we have to be also very careful and mindful there of what we mean by uh, some of the work that we need to do on the supply chain. In India, for instance, introduced a law a couple of years ago, effectively pricing Chinese solar panels out of the market uh, in order to encourage uh, the onshoring of, uh, of uh, the manufacture of solar panels. Yeah, the harsh reality is that all of those Indian solar panels, though, uh, still rely on Chinese silica. Uh, so there's only so much you can do. And uh, as consumers and as investors, we want to change our supply chains and not rely on Chinese products for uh, humans right, human rights issues. But China still accounts for the vast, vast majority of all of the silica used in panels wherever they're manufactured. So I think that the supply chains and how we manage it is actually going to be the biggest challenge uh, over the next couple of years. And I think I think that supply chain piece is going to be really interesting from from a from a transition plan perspective. So we're seeing right now um, that the, the UK government has uh, mandated that uh, the, the transition plans that are aligned with the government's net zero trajectories will become uh, will become mandatory for larger firms over the coming uh, few years. There's a there's a task force right now working out what a, what a good transition plan looks like. But I think it's unrealistic to expect that a that a company can write its own transition plan without also trying to understand what the transition plans of its suppliers are. Um, and so I think there is going to be, you know, these large companies in the UK are going to start reaching out to their suppliers, large and small, um, and saying, right, our, you know, our, our footprint in large part depends on what you do as our suppliers. So what are you going to do about it so that we can write that into our own transition plan? And I think there's going to be a really big um, focus on supply chains um, and how those emissions can be reduced as part of the big corporates and what they're doing with their supply chains. Definitely. We'll move on then. Our businesses are booming for the fossil fuel industry lately. It was seen um, prices soar. As we see new fossil fuel projects discussed as well, is the industry moving fast enough? <laughs> Anyone want to get the ball rolling there? I was say, is that a slightly poison chalice question? Um, no. <laughs> given given uh, events in the Ukraine, I, I'm, I'm not sure that the issue over um, oil and gas uh, is necessarily... Uh, the, the nuance over the use of oil and gas is necessarily the right one. You know, the harsh reality is that no matter how much um, variable load power you generate uh, anywhere in the world, we're still uh, we're still reliant on base load um, uh, to, uh, to you know to basically stabilise the grids and provide the the twenty four seven coverage. And that doesn't matter whether you're in the UK, the US, or you know an emerging market in Asia. Uh, strategically, what we did in the Philippines uh, ten years ago was we started to build. Uh, effectively cogeneration sites where we have a baseload biomass plant using uh, locally generated sugarcane trash, the, the rubbish left in the field after the harvest, in order to provide the baseload on which we then build uh, multiple layers of variable load, primarily uh, primarily solar. Um, you know, you can do that in a uh, effectively a closed community in an emerging market. Uh, you can't do that in London. Um, so uh, and I found myself in a sort of strange position. I, I was in Glasgow in November, having to defend 
uh, uh, the Indian government's use of coal. You can put as many gigawatts of solar as you like in India, um, but that doesn't solve the baseload problem. Uh, and with India's rapid population expansion and urbanisation, they need baseload. So it, the the increased use and the reliance on fossil fuels will continue until technology effectively replaces it. You know, look at the amount of money going into battery storage. Once we get battery storage to a a scalable solution that fills the gap uh, in um, in peak load power, then our reliance on fossil fuels uh, can be transitioned away. But I think that we, you know we have to recognise. The nuance and the the the, the need uh, in order to protect uh, you know ourselves and our living standards. People are not going to vote for drops in living standards uh, as part of a of a, uh, a of a net zero strategy. So I think that that's the nuance around the continued use and the expansion, even at the moment, of uh, of our own reliance on fossil fuel. And I'm sure we'll get onto energy security and the implications for that in a minute. I mean, I think I think it's really good that Tony you mentioned uh, the Glasgow um, climate conference, and one one of the really interesting uh, announcements that came out of there. There were, there were so many announcements that many of them got lost in the noise, but one of them that made us seem to make a bit of press was was um, uh, a coalition of countries coming together to work with South Africa um, uh, and to support South Africa to which has got one of the most coal heavy grids uh, in the world to 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 come together and, and and see if they can address that using some I guess blended finance which is combining development aid um with 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 private finance and i think that that was that was a really interesting announcement how you know how how is that going to change the, the the energy mix in south africa is that a model that's replicable could that be scaled up to the size of india uh, i i think uh, first off i was absolutely delighted that one of the other announcements that came out of uh, the uh, the cop conference was uh, uh, the UK government's investment in the Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact Trust. Uh, so, uh, and first-hand, uh, first-hand reason to be there. Uh, and I'm even more proud of the fact. Uh, and uh, you know, I, uh, as a as a Brit, I, you know, I represent our country every time I step off the plane in India, the Philippines, Vietnam, or wherever I, I, I travel. Uh, and um, I was very proud of the fact that our government put its money where its mouth was, uh, or, or where its mouth is, through its mobilist program that the Foreign Office announced uh, a year ago. So that's hard new money going into uh, into uh, supporting uh, the push towards net zero in difficult and challenging emerging markets. Um, so I think the, the 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 idea that we're looking for blended finance solutions in South Africa absolutely true across all of the other emerging markets in which we're working with uh, with the government. I think um, it's also worth highlighting here that um, we still have a, a big reliance on gas in terms of heating our homes. Um, and the investment that we need in that side of things, so, you know, um, better insulation, um, super efficient heat pumps, uh, we are invested in some district heating assets. That, does, that, that doesn't work everywhere. Um, so that side of things hasn't yet, you know, come, come to fruition. And I think, you know, we, we're placing a lot of um, hope on the use of hydrogen and blending that within the gas networks. But so far, you know, they've managed to do sort of a 20% blend and and that's kind of where we cap out. So, you know, I, I wouldn't, 
I wouldn't necessarily say business is booming for fossil fuels, but there are some key issues that need to be worked out. Um, and I think that is, is why we are seeing some, some fossil fuels projects being discussed at the moment. But I, but I think realistically, we actually need to be starting to look very critically at the fossil fuel projects that are coming on, on stream. We've seen four trillion dollars of new financing going into fossil fuel projects since the Paris Agreement. And, you know, one of my serious concerns is, is, is actually how, you know, the, how the policy landscape and, you know, is not the same policy landscape that those investments would have sat in, uh, or that, 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 that lending would have sat in, in the, in the 80s or 90s. These are not, you know, I, I don't think these are as dead certs as, as they have been in the past. And I, and I really worry that we are setting our banking system up for quite a big risk when we've got so much, uh, uh capital lent towards these huge projects that, that, that may or may not be viable for the expected duration that they might be accounted for. And so, you know, and there's this big move towards, towards, I guess, what's called Paris aligned accounting, which is about how you depreciate your assets. And so if you have a coal fired power station and you're, normal depreciation of that because it's expected life is is you know 40 or 50 years in this scenario right now if you were to build a new power station can you depreciate it over that period of time well i think realistically you can't and so what impact is that having on your you know on your overall pnl over the over the kind of in the near term and what does that do to your financial model so i think there's you know there's some really some really big questions there and i think that you know what we're increasingly seeing is government's doing some of the hard things so you know i said at the very beginning that you know we can't do this on our own as as finance or indeed as the private sector government is going to have to do hard stuff and and one of the you know the big kind of regulations that the government has has in the uk has done is to basically ban combustion engine vehicles from 2030 which is right around the corner you know we're seeing of course more electric vehicles on the streets every every day um but this is going to be a massive transformation so and 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 then once that gets moving it will almost be a required transformation because sooner or later petrol stations particularly those that are in london and big kind of you know valuable real estate will not be viable anymore and so you'll have to go 20 miles just to fill up your car and um, and so you probably will say well time i went electric of course the challenge of that is what about the people that can't afford to do that and how do we and how do we address that challenge and i think there's got to be some serious policy thinking around that that the, the that piece um but i think you know policy is moving forwards and um, you know we're going to come on to talk about ukraine i think in a minute but you know i'd be disappointed to see lots of new licenses for for drilling being issued because i think in the longer term that's not where we're going. We've got to figure out this, you know, as Tony mentioned, we've got to figure out this baseload question, um, but we've got to figure out how we store energy um, so that when the sun is shining, we're able to get that energy stored and we're able to, to use it when it's not. Paul, anything to add from your side? No, I think um, um, that was fairly comprehensive um, and, and super interesting. Excellent. We'll move on then and discuss a little bit of what's happening uh, in the Ukraine. In Ukraine, so obviously beyond the tragedy and loss of human life, could Russia's invasion of Ukraine impact goals? Move away from fossil fuels as countries seek to increase production and move away from dependency on the country.
I mean, I think it's a really important question, and you know, clearly, it's a it's a a, a tragic and terrible and 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 rapidly evolving situation. Just you know, it's all started in the last in you know, the last couple of weeks, and so you know, how how this is going to play out, and 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 you know, is 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 still not not very clear. And I think you know, I'd certainly. It's not not for me to be kind of making political points about about you know how it could be used for a sustainability agenda, and I certainly don't want to wish to do that given the unfolding tragedy and appalling loss of human life. But you know I think there is there is now some open questions about what this means for the future of Europe in particular, which is heavily reliant on on Russian gas. And there's there's, there's two ways that this could go. It could be Europe could start saying, well, we need to find more ways of extracting our own fossil fuels. Um, uh, and not rely on Russian fossil fuels if that's the direction. And of course, the other, which is maybe the slightly longer term route, is to say, well, you know, how can we ultimately wean ourselves away from fossil fuels altogether and start to accelerate the the, the drive um, that there is um, towards, of course, greater sustainability in the first place? And I think, you know, the the ultimate plan by 2050 is that we're not relying on fossil fuels in 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 that sense anyway. So so there has always been that. That's always been part of the objective. The question is, how can that you know what what has this crisis and tragedy done to either accelerate that or to slow it down and i think that's still not a, not not a clear a clear question and um, we are seeing the uk talking about um, new licensing um for some of the oil fields um off our uh, off our coasts um we're seeing discussion today in the papers i saw about um reopening some of the fracking plants and, and starting to, to look at that again and um, you know the question is are these going to be temporary interventions are those people financing and and investing in these looking at them and accounting for them in such a way that they are short term you know uh you know filling a gap and then and then coming off grid again um or are these being anticipated to be long-term projects and i think that's one of the things that the government needs to really think through when they're issuing these licenses is what sort of time frame are they are they looking to, to do and i think having in in their minds when they're doing these licensing you know what is this impact what's it going to do what's it what's it going to cause and um, and so i think that one of the one of the you know the other implications of what's happening in ukraine is that it is taking attention off of the net zero targets which of course require global cooperation require huge amounts of um, time effort resource um, and political thinking and attention to make sure that they followed um you know so we've got to figure out how do we you know make sure you know address this tragedy minimize the loss of life um but then also think about what the longer term consequences are for keeping us on track with these net zero targets and objectives so we we've seen the eu come out with the repower eu plan i think it, it came out yesterday um and they're looking to aim to cut reliance on russian gas by two-thirds within a year and if you think about the fact that nearly 40 percent of all fossil fuel consumed in europe um and, and gas in particular comes from russia i mean that's a that's a pretty big plan that, that they've set out um and they have said that they do expect emissions may rise in the, in the short term because it will put a reliance on coal plants um, that previously were going to be decommissioned or, you know, were not in use at the time. But what they have said is that they hope that longer term there's, there's a greater focus on, on sustainable. So, you know, they've, they've got plans to massively ramp up renewables, biogas and hydrogen. Um, you know, they've talked about massive investment in solar rooftops, um, they're talking about biogas from made, made from agricultural food waste. Um, and then they're also talking about quadrupling the use of hydrogen by 2030. And if you think about that last target, if you think about hydrogen, 
you know, it, it's very much been sort of a, a blue sky plan to get us to 2050, but it, it hasn't been, you know, in the spotlight for a 2030 um, um, aim. So I think that that will uh, hopefully, and I mean, there's there's much to be said about the impact on the consumer and, and how this plan will, will impact on the everyday EU citizen. Um but there, there is a chance here that it does speed up investment in renewable, um, and we do see a positive from that. But I think in the short term, uh, given the focus on security of supply, we will see an, an, an increase in carbon emissions. Uh, I, I, frankly, I despair. Um, the complacency of, uh, of uh, Western governments over the last 20 years is beyond belief. Uh, I invest in countries uh, where energy security is a major political issue and where clean air is a major political issue because people die. Um, uh, and the, the fact that the West, the Western governments, particularly in Europe, took their eye off the ball in terms of preserving and ensuring energy security uh, over the last 20 years was always going to end in tears. Uh, um, you know, let's always remember globalization relies on everybody playing by the same rules. Immediately somebody stops playing by the same rules, globalization, uh, you know, suffers. Um, and we all suffer. Uh, and I think it's been a massive wake up call to, to European governments that actually, uh, it is important. You know, I, I was rereading a couple of weeks ago the statements made by both the UK and the German government in 2012 about we don't need to worry about storing gas anymore because we've got a forever everlasting supply of gas. Yeah, well, that didn't last long, did it? Um, so I, I think it's been massive complacency. Um, uh, we used to, the UK government for many years used to change its energy policy faster than the McDonald's burger flipper flips burgers. Uh, you had no consistency, you had no approach, no long term. It was impossible to have any long term planning, uh, and all of those all of those missteps have come home to roost all at once. Yeah, definitely seems like uh, you would have been a fool to not see coming, like you say. Paul, uh, anything to add from your side? Well, I guess uh, something that hasn't really been mentioned is is the role of carbon uh, tax uh, or a carbon price. Um, the increased prices of oil and, and, and commodities will ultimately choke off um, demand and, and accelerate a, a shift to... Uh, you know, a different uh, renewable business model that doesn't rely on a on a commodity. So, I mean, ultimately, the the, the, the spikes that we're seeing now will will will, it, will accelerate the shift to electric vehicles and, and renewable energy, um, which um, and whether it's through the commodity price or or other mechanisms such as a carbon price. Um, uh, that, that, that's a positive impact, um, but, um, but but Tony's absolutely right. You know there is an enormous trade-off between uh, climate change, clean air, and, and energy security. And I think we need to be. You know, governments have continually made mistakes in this in this field um, that we we're, that we ultimately all pay the price for. So um, uh, it, it is a, you know it's a very uh, unstable situation we're in.
I, th- I think the other thing to think to think about is the impact uh, on on the investors that are, or, or or the companies that are invested in those in that in that region. So we've seen, you know, um, BP and Shell in particular taking, you know, almost unprecedented steps to say that they're going to just going to leave and divest from their from their enormous projects. You know, BP's twenty billion um, dollar program in in, in Rosneft, and you know, I think this this is part of the wider way up call that 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 when things shift and they shift quickly and they you know even huge globally significant companies like bp and shell are not able to to kind of ride that to ride that wave and come out on top they're, they're going to make huge balance sheet write downs as a result of, of of what's gone on here and and who's paying the price for that well ultimately it's the investors it's all of us in our pensions that that, that have been invested in these companies um, you know for a long time and you know what we know is that there's been a lot of investors of asking for a very long time. Are, is it right to be invested in these in these um, uh, in these projects? Is it right that, that that they're a core part of what you do as a business? Is it stable? What are the risks? Have you really calculated what the risks are here? And I think it's causing you know and and wider move around ESG is causing I think a requirement to reassess and to look much more um, strategically about the the the, the wider. Both geopolitical, environmental, um, social risks that are built into an awful lot of different, or, or, or rather, that are not built into the valuation of a lot of different investments. And I think that's something that that now needs to start happening at a much greater pace. You know, what other what other countries are people invested in, and um, what are the risks around around those investments? Um, and I'm not just talking about oil. I'm talking about you know the supply chains and, and manufacturers that we talked about earlier as well. You know, what are what are the social the environmental the geopolitical implications or risks that are emerging and what and what's the most sensible thing to do with those investments is it to get out now before those risks materialize is it to try and transition those companies to to eliminate those risks or to, to you know, minimize those risks you know i think investors need to start taking a really long hard look at what they're invested in and uh, and, and and really start to strategically think through you know what what are we actually got on the line here and what could be the consequences Sorry, didn't you make a, 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 another point unintentionally there? Why do the oil companies love net zero? Why did they latch onto net zero over the last uh, uh, you know, five, ten years? Uh, it's because net zero means they can pump out and continue to do what they like as long as they grow a few, few trees on the other side of the balance sheet. Yeah, I think that that's probably the, the, the biggest wake-up call, actually, out of uh, the complacency of the last few years. Well, I think I think yeah, and I think there is a there is you know some some serious there's you know that raises a few serious questions, which is you know in whose hands are all these oil aging oil fields going to go? And I think if we're you know pushing Shell and others to go on this green pathway, what they're realistically going to do is say, fine, we're going to buy lots of solar farms and we're going to sell our oil fields at some point in the future. You know, but who then owns those solar farms? Uh, those, those, those oil fields, sorry, that you know they still exist in the world. They're probably going to be owned then by sovereign wealth funds or private equity firms that don't care about the long term, that care about making as quick a buck as they can. Which again is why we would say that we're actually going to need government to step in and say, at some point, you can't do this anymore. At some point, this is going to be illegal. At some point, these licenses are going to expire and so you know i think again there is a requirement for that government intervention for that for that hard that hard edge of, of, of the government to deal with it um, unfortunately you've run into the nuance uh, then of, of the baseload problems and marianne was absolutely right what she said a little while ago uh, about the need for the investment in technology you know 
uh, hydrogen has to move from blue sky thinking to practical reality. You know, somebody has to figure out how to replace my gas boiler with something else that's economic. Um, yeah, we're, we're trapped. We're still trapped in a um, in a base load, global baseload problem. And, and we're still. Yeah, I agree with you. And we're still. And we're still creating path dependencies. We're still building new buildings that are not adequately insulated that have got gas boilers attached to them. We're still. You know. We're still. You know. And 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 we're not thinking about the creation of this entire retrofit industry that is going to support the. You know. You know. In this country, let alone in in other countries around the world. You know, that's going to support the creation of, of these low energy buildings that we need. You know, that was one of the big, the big weak points of the government's net zero strategy, which was broadly welcomed, but it didn't have anywhere near enough detail on how we're going to fix our buildings. And that's in this country. You know, obviously other countries that have got many other wider social and, and economic issues to contend with than we do. It's even further down the list. So, you know, we've got to do so much more, particularly on reducing our energy consumption, as you say, Tony, so that we don't have this. You know, and we can eliminate this based on problem.